Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Writs of eviction have been backlogged in Georgia since federal unemployment checks, CARES Act protections, and stalled courts kept sheriffs at bay. Now hundreds of thousands of Georgians are at risk of being thrown out of their homes. An eviction is not a a symptom of poverty. It is a cause of poverty. When a family is evicted, it plunges them further and deeper into poverty. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on Second Thought, projections, protections, and consequences of an eviction crisis. Plus, Natasha Trethewey swore she'd never return to Atlanta after her mother was murdered there. 35 years later, she faces those demons in a searing memoir. I did not like writing it. It was very difficult to go into those places that I've spent most of my life trying to bury and suppress. But I feel so happy to have written it. The former poet laureate on how her trauma became her calling. On Second Thought is coming up. First, the news. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. With the unemployment skyrocketing, federal assistance checks halted, and a moratorium on evictions expiring, the question is not if the country is heading into an eviction crisis, but just how bad it will be. Census Bureau research shows the share of renters at risk of eviction in Georgia is around 46%, among the highest in the nation. And that will likely begin this month. Here to talk more about what could be an avalanche of evictions in Georgia is Dan Immergluck, professor of the Urban Studies Institute at Georgia State University. Dan, great to have you back with us. Thank you. And Ellis Samani is data reporter for ProPublica, who's been covering evictions since the beginning of the pandemic, including here in Georgia. Ellis, thanks for taking the time. Thank you for having me. And Susan Reef is also with us. She's director of the Eviction Prevention Project. That's with the Georgia Legal Services Program, serving clients outside of the metro Atlanta area counties. Susan, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. All right, Dan, I'm going to start with you. Georgia already has the fourth highest eviction rate in the country. Atlanta consistently among top 10 metro areas for evictions. So big picture first, do we know how many people in Georgia or nationally will be at risk for eviction? Oh, that's a really good question. Generally, we're talking hundreds of thousands a year. Just in the metro, the five counties, we see about 10,000 a month. So I would say we're probably looking at 20,000 a month in terms of filings in the state. But we've seen, because of the moratoria, the courts being closed, we've seen filings go down dramatically. They're starting to creep back up. But that also means there's lots of landlords who haven't filed, who likely are kind of holding off on filing until the courts open up. And that could mean a backlog of tens of thousands of eviction filings all kind of hitting uh, the state at one time. Yeah, this is the fear. Well, the CARES Act protections for tenants expired on July 25th. And there was talk that that would be extended. So can you give us some clarity on what kind of protections, either state or federal, exist right now for people possibly facing eviction as a result of COVID-19? Yes, so the CARES Act covered pretty much any property that was either backed by a federal loan 
or had some kind of housing subsidy involved in it. And that could be a voucher, but it's often also things like low-income housing tax credits. And it basically stopped filings or was supposed to stop filings on all those apartments. And ProPublica did excellent work finding that actually some of those landlords continued to file. Um, And fortunately, Georgia was one state where the courts eventually said, you have to show us ahead of time that your unit is not covered by the CARES Act before you can file. Mm -hmm. A lot of states that didn't happen at all. Um, So it turns out the CARES Act covered probably about maybe 30%, 33% of rental properties. But there's all these pent-up potential filings that landlords have held back on because of various moratorium and court closings. Right. So this is the avalanche or the tsunami that people are predicting. Ellis, you've been reporting on evictions during the pandemic for ProPublica. I'll get to the issue that Dan referred to, people actually filing against the moratoria. But you put together a database where people can look up their addresses and determine whether or not they could be evicted. So what is that? what is that determined by and who is or isn't protected? Right. So one of the things we noticed in doing this reporting was that the CARES Act, as Dan mentioned, was something that was very expansive and covering uh, millions of properties around the country. But what we found was that a lot of renters had no no way of figuring out whether or not their property was covered under the CARES Act. And so one of the things we did was assemble a database where folks can enter in their address and figure out whether or not the property or apartment complex they live in participates or receives other federal funding sources that that Dan mentioned. And one of the one of the things that we wanted to do was give folks the ability to have a way of searching whether or not their property may be covered so that they'd know, you know, to, to perhaps go to their landlord to ask for the questions or direct, you know, some some inquiry to legal aid resources as well on the ground. So Susan, this is where you come in. You are providing legal aid to Georgians facing eviction. Now this is outside of the five county metro Atlanta area. So what are you hearing from your clients as unemployment and lost wages skyrocket here in Georgia? Uh, You know, the number of calls we're receiving with nonpayment dispossessories has skyrocketed. Many of our courts were allowing landlords to file dispossessories, but they were not serving them. So while the courts were closed under the judicial emergency, landlords were still filing. Those cases are now all being served now that the courts have opened up. And in addition, writs that were issued, you know, prior to the shutdown, the closure of the courts in March, those are all being sent out. So believe me, we're feeling that on our our telephone line. We're hearing a lot of confusion. and, And that's really been the hallmark of this crisis is the difficulty in getting information out. You know, we would get a lot of calls from clients confused about whether the CARES Act applied to them, and some would thought that it did prevent them from being evicted for non-payment, but it really didn't. And we're kind of in that position again now with the executive order. So, so let me ask you, I'm curious about that because it was a bit confusing for a lot of people last weekend when President Trump issued four executive orders, one of them was supposed to provide relief for tenants specifically. It's been some real question about whether there's any real teeth to that. But Susan, how did, how did, what were you hearing from people after the executive order? 
Um, Monday morning, with by noon, we had received four to five calls from tenants who were calling because they had heard on the news that they were protected from eviction. They wanted to know why the sheriff was there telling them they had to leave when they had heard on the news they were protected. And so we had to explain to them that, you know, we've looked at the language of the order and that it didn't take any action that would stop the court system from processing evictions. And that was very confusing for for the tenants that we spoke to, as you can imagine. And it's just another level of confusion that's been added to the situation tenants have been in since this happened in March. Dan, do you want to tell us what was in that order and whether there was the promised relief? Um, my reading of it and my reading of other people's opinions on it is that it's window dressing. Um, so basically, the executive order from the president did not do anything to stop evictions. It basically said that they would look into it. And of course, the president can only do so much himself to do an actual kind of across the board eviction ban or eviction moratorium would take an act of Congress. But I think what the president could have done and didn't do was extend much of the CARES Act protections. And it's disappointing that he not only didn't do that, he confused people and took the steam out of negotiations and calls for extending those moratoria. So I actually think the executive orders were counterproductive. They also didn't generate any rental assistance funding. He just directed Secretary Carson to look for some money, which isn't clear there is any. And even the unemployment insurance extension, which isn't really an extension, but was a new program proposed, it's uncertain whether it will work. And if it does, he's structured in a way to cut off the lowest income recipients of unemployment insurance, folks who receive regularly less than $100 a month. That's precisely the folks who are most risk of eviction. So I really think it was a, an actually a destructive move. And, and I would just jump jump in there if I, if I can really quickly to kind of echo one of the points Dan is making is that one of the things we found in our reporting at ProPublica is that the CARES Act was actually very effective in sort of slowing the pace of evictions. Um, one of the things we found was that prior to the implementation of the CARES Act, over 40% of evictions in Metro Atlanta um, were at federally backed apartments, apartments that are covered, of course, under the CARES Act. And that number dropped to around 5% during the pandemic. Of course, you know, there were some folks that continued to file at covered properties that we can get into a little bit more later. However, you know, one of the things we found was that this was actually in conjunction with uh, rent relief measures and other state and local eviction moratoria around the country. It was actually a pretty effective way of trying to slow the pace of evictions for folks that are out of work or otherwise unable to pay their rent. We are talking about what is predicted to be an evictions crisis in the U.S. and here in Georgia. GSU professor Dan Immergluck is with us. Ellis Samani, data reporter for ProPublica, covering evictions. And Susan Reef, director of Eviction Prevention Project for Georgia Legal Services Program. So tell me about your reporting with ProPublica. You reached out to a number of property managers, including numerous agencies in the Atlanta metro area. Many said they didn't even realize they were supposed to stop filing evictions at the time. 
But also, some of the companies you investigated received PPP loan money while carrying out evictions in the area. So what's the story here? Right, that's correct. So one of the things we reported back in April, kind of a few weeks after the CARES Act was actually implemented, was that some landlords had continued to file at properties that received federal backing. And when we reached out to these landlords, there were definitely some that, you know, kind of expressed a lack of knowledge and that the, you know, their property that they might own was covered. Others that just sort of quickly reversed those filings that they might have made. Um, And there were also a lot that just didn't respond to our comment. But fortunately, you know, we did manage as a result of that reporting um, to get some of those eviction filings reversed, um, including at properties in Georgia. And, 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 and in some cases, you know, we found folks that were filing in, you know, in large numbers. And I think, you know, you're referencing a specific company that we profiled in the story called Ventron Management, which is mm-hmm. a Florida-based company that has thousands of units in both uh, throughout Florida and Georgia. And what we found was that during uh, the two months before the pandemic, they were filing about 700 cases in in January and February. Um, And that dropped down to around 400 cases over the past couple months. Um, But that's still, you know, a significant number of eviction filings to be making, you know, at a time where folks are out of work, um, people, you know, are furloughed or have lost their jobs. And as you mentioned, that company also received what we imagine to be two to $5 million in loans from the Paycheck Protection Program, uh, which was administered under the Small Business Administration. So Ellis just talked a little bit about a large property management company that they investigated. Well, maybe you're likely to apply for federal loans like PPP in that case. But let's see, Susan, what if you're an individual or family who's been relying on renting your property for income? What kind of protections are there for you or landlords in general? Congress, as part of the CARES Act, did allocate a large sum of money to both local governments and to state government agencies to distribute, and it's called rental assistance. And often that's thought of in terms of, you know, a benefit to tenants, but this rental arrearage is not paid to the tenant, it's paid to the landlord. So really rental assistance is landlord assistance. Mm -hmm. And landlords just need to agree to participate and accept these payments in addition to not, you know, proceeding to evict. And that money is, you know, it it takes a while between the time Congress authorizes the money, the time it gets to the state and local governments, and the time it actually distributes. And we're really in a race right now to get that money into the communities that need it. That to me is, you know, that is an essential piece that needs to be in play right now. And it cannot come quickly enough for tenants who are facing eviction. Well, talk about the tenants of facing eviction. We know that evictions in general disproportionately affect marginalized groups. Recently reading a Vice headline that said, the eviction crisis already here and it's crushing black moms. So so who and which demographics are most affected? Well, it's definitely hurting the, the lowest income folks. And, and that's disproportionately brown and black folks, especially in the metropolitan area. It's also hurting folks in certain industries more than others, folks who work in, you know, basically frontline workers, people who have been uh, employed in tourism, that industry has been decimated, hotel workers, those kinds of folks. And again, disproportionately brown and black folks. Um, What's particularly worrisome about the federal response right now is what has really saved renters 
much more than any rental assistance has been the expanded unemployment assistance because that's a much bigger program. And the $600 a month extra has been hugely important to low-wage workers. Well, it turns out that the administration's executive order will cut out that assistance for folks who normally receive less than $100 a month in unemployment assistance. That's going to dramatically hurt the lowest wage workers. And that means they're really not going to be, they're the most vulnerable in terms of eviction. And that really means this, if it works out at all, that this new unemployment expansion won't help the folks who are most vulnerable to eviction, which is kind of ironic. And we do know, of course, that this is still tied up in Congress. Not sure what the next stage is going to reveal there. But this isn't just about evictions. It's not just about a place to live. As we saw during the Great Recession on a large scale, the impact of evictions and of housing crises and that we're still living with. How did you see that play out in your reporting in the broader community? Ellis, do you want to answer that for me? Yeah, sure. You know, I, I really do want to echo what Dan said about how how just how much expanded unemployment benefits helps folks who otherwise may have been experiencing eviction due, due to being out of work um, during the pandemic. And, you know, one of the things we also saw was that, of course, there's been a large, large amount of issues with folks not getting their unemployment checks. And a lot of the people who reached out to us after seeing our reporting kind of expressed, you know, hey, like I, I just didn't get my check this month. And so I wasn't able to pay rent and my landlord isn't working with me, I don't know what I should do. Um, and that's something that you know seems to be a very common thing that has happened over the past few months is that states experiencing backlog in the unemployment process um, have had more renters that you know seem to be not getting um, the support they need in order to continue with their rent payments. And I think one of the things that um, sort of has come to light from our reporting is that some landlords are more willing than others to work with tenants. Um, we've certainly, when we've reached out to landlords, and you know, a lot of folks try to make the argument that, hey, you know, we work with tenants, we try to come up with payment plans and other situations. That seems to be something that perhaps is more the case than others. However, you know, you also have to look at it from the side of the landlords, especially small landlords, you know, who also have to keep up with mortgage payments. I think this is where it really gets back to what Susan was saying about how important rent relief is, because ultimately that's you know, going to go from the tenant's pockets to, to the landlord's pockets, and especially smaller landlords really can benefit from that right now. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to take a quick break here and come back with my guests, Dan Amergluck and Ellis Samani and Susan Reef to talk about what is a looming eviction crisis facing Georgia and the nation. I'm Virginia Prescott. On Second Thought, we'll continue after a short break. We're back with On Second Thought from GPBM, Virginia Prescott. Experts predict an eviction crisis is going to hit the nation. Protections under the CARES Act, which covered a quarter of renters, expired at the end of July. That means the first wave of evictions will likely hit the courts at the end of August. As one of just seven states that did not issue a statewide stay on evictions, and one of four states where some rent-based evictions continued, despite the federal moratorium, and where nearly 250,000 households sink more than half of their income into rent, Georgia faces an especially precarious situation. My guests, Dan Emmergluck, Ellis Samani, and Susan Reefer continuing our conversation about what that means and how to help. 
Well, we know prominent eviction scholars like Matthew Desmond have outlined the, the kind of cycle, the feedback loop between eviction and poverty. Susan, do, can you help us understand that cycle and how people can break out of it? We also believe and share that value that an eviction is not a, a symptom of poverty. It is a cause of poverty. When a family is evicted, it plunges them further and deeper into poverty. You know, an eviction put out is a loss of personal property. Most tenants have no place to move the items they have collected to, so they are usually scavenged or end up being picked up as trash. There's also the added expense of just trying to relocate, which is why we've seen so many people kind of get trapped in this extended stay hotel cycle that they can never really break out of. Mm-hmm. You know, what's interesting to me in this is when the foreclosure, and you mentioned the foreclosure crisis earlier, and that that really seemed to hit pretty much every economic group. What we're seeing now with the eviction crisis is it is hitting low-income people harder. You know, our clients at Georgia Legal Services are hourly workers, low education levels. Those are the people who lost their job first. Mm -hmm. And that's why the benefit programs, the unemployment are are so important because this is a group that didn't have a safety net to begin with. You know, over 70% of the low income renters in Georgia are paying over 50% of their income for rent. Mm -hmm. This is a group that where they, you know, if they lost hours at work, they had a hard time making the rental payment, let alone what they were required, the choices they were required to make when they lost that job. This is impacting people of color harder. The Eviction Prevention Project, which is since 2017, has been focused just on private landlord-tenant evictions. Approximately 70% of our clients are people of color. So yes, this is going to hit that group harder. So, of course, this is a much larger conversation than the one we are having now. We're witnessing the deadlock in Congress, and you are pointing to, all of you have pointed to, the federal solutions that have worked. But is there something now that could potentially benefit both landlords and renters for the remainder of the pandemic? A a realistic public policy, either on the state level here in Georgia or the federal level, that would help find a middle ground between these two parties? Well, I chip in there. I think the state of Georgia has done almost nothing. It's, uh, you know, passing through some of the CARES Act money, but it hasn't, various states have taken some of the CARES Act money and generated sizable rental assistance programs. We're stuck with mostly the assistance that has gone down to the local level. I think the city of Atlanta has been really quite strong in terms of the fact that they've devoted 22 million of their CARES Act dollars to rental assistance, which for the size of the city, I've looked at other cities, it's one of the higher amounts per capita. Mm -hmm. Um, But even that, that maybe will cover 5,000 tenants um, for a number of months. Um, And you're talking about a city with really 100,000 tenants and many of those tenants are low income. So there really hasn't been much done. I think we have to be very creative. One of the problems is state and local government budgets are getting hit by this crisis, but we need to get creative because one thing that we're seeing now is because of what you've talked about, which is the the harm caused to landlords, is we're seeing 
non-payment rates at older rental properties skyrocket. There was just a report in Bloomberg that a survey of what are called Class C landlords, meaning older rental properties. These are multifamily, but older rental properties. Mm -hmm. Only 37% of rent payments were collected in July by middle of the month. That was down from 80% before the pandemic. Those buildings are now threatened with a number of things. One is foreclosure. But of course, even before that, they may be bought by private equity investors, by folks looking to turn those properties into more upscale properties. Because, you know, the upscale rental market is doing quite well. It really hasn't suffered significantly. And there's still a shortage of rental housing, believe it or not. And so those properties are going to get scooped up or they might get abandoned. And that means that we're threatened with really a long-term loss of what some folks call naturally occurring affordable housing, what I tend to call just low-cost rental housing. And that has short-term implications that are bad, but it also has long-term implications that are very bad. If I may add, that is particularly concerning to low-income renters because the foreclosure crisis Multifamily housing was not built during that, you know, approximate 10-year period. And that's housing that would have aged into being affordable. So we are still suffering from a lack of affordable housing because it wasn't built during the foreclosure crisis. And now it's true. Some of these properties that are Class C, which translates to me into affordable for my clients, if those properties are lost due to foreclosure or purchased up and revitalized into luxury housing, that's going to eliminate the already limited pool of affordable housing that low-income or moderate-income people can access in this state. And that is a, a, that would make the situation ongoing even worse. Well, a lack of affordable housing is a situation that existed long before COVID-19. Ellis, wondering for you, somebody who has studied Atlanta and markets across the country, what do you think is a policy solution or where do we go from here and where are people actually going once they get kicked out? Right. That's a that's a good question. You know, a lot of them may be going to stay with family members. You know, we talk to a lot of folks that may be single mothers and have kids who have to stay home from school so they can't go back to work. And so that's, you know, been something that's been additionally challenging about experiencing being evicted right now. In terms of, you know, looking at policies, Again, I would just sort of reinforce that one thing that tenant advocates and also folks that represent landlords as well seem to be advocating for very strongly is rent relief. If Congress does end up extending the eviction moratorium, one key thing we found is that there's no enforcement mechanism. And so, you know, one of the things is that even if the, the, the CARES Act is extended, I think without any enforcement, you know, it'll be really tricky for folks who do end up going to court to prove that, especially if they're landlord is fighting pretty strongly against it, which is something we've seen just disconnect between, you know, whether or not a property is actually covered. So, you know, it seems as though that a lot of a lot of signs point to the federal government intervening in some way, especially when we're seeing, you know, as we reported over 40% of eviction filings in metro areas like Atlanta occurring at buildings that do have a federally backed mortgage. Susan, quickly, where are people going who you have spoken to who have been turfed out of their homes? In many of our cases, in the, some of the smaller rural communities, there's 
not an emergency shelter that people can go to. We're looking at people, you know, moving in with family, but with so many school districts moving to virtual learning for children, you know, that overcrowding of a household impacts that child's ability to learn. And where we see many people go are the extended stay hotels, which, you know, have an affordable weekly rate, but keep people kind of trapped in that cycle of poverty. Plus, you know, they're not tenants, they don't have any real protections. So it, it's, they're in more jeopardy of an immediate put out. Well, that is a tangled situation and one that we are going to have to be dealing with as a culture, as a city, as a state. I want to thank you so much for speaking with us. Susan Reef, Director of Eviction Prevention Project for Georgia Legal Services Program. Thank you for your time. Thank you. And Dan Amergluck, Professor of Urban Studies at Georgia State University. Thank you so much. Thank you. Ellis Amani, data reporter for ProPublica, covering evictions. Thank you for your time. Thanks so much for having me. And we will put a link to the ProPublica database where you can check the eviction likelihood for your address. We'll post that on our website, gpb.org OST. Coming up in her new memoir, former poet laureate Natasha Trethewey confronts the murder of her mother that she tried so hard to forget. That's when On Second Thought continues. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Natasha Trethway was just 19 when her mother was murdered by her ex-husband in the Atlanta suburb of Pine Lake. That was 1985. After decades spent willing herself to forget that horror, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author and former U.S. Poet Laureate confronts her anguish in a new memoir called Memorial Drive. Trethaway's real father, a white Canadian, and her mother, who was black, married in 1965 when interracial marriage was illegal in Mississippi. They settled in Gulfport, where her maternal grandmother's family lived. They were active in the voting and civil rights movement shaking up the state at the time. And when she was a child, the Klan burned a cross on the property. I spoke with Natasha Trethaway about Memorial Drive in a virtual event co-sponsored by the Atlanta History Center and Air Serenby. I asked her if she knew why her family was targeted. Well, you know, um, my grandmother's house where we were living at the time was right across from the Mount Olive Baptist Church. And at that time, the church had been doing a voter registration drive to get disenfranchised African-Americans registered to vote. My grandmother um, had participated. Her driveway is where the cross was burned. And because the church didn't have its own driveway, she would let them park the church bus in her driveway. So we were never quite sure if the cross burning was simply about the voter registration that she was participating in and the church was doing, or because of the interracial family that was living inside the house. You were just seven when you left the comfort and attention of your adoring relatives in Mississippi to move to Atlanta. This was 1973, so when Atlanta was announcing itself as the capital of the New South. Your mother, she waited tables at Underground Atlanta, putting herself through school, went on to get her master's in social work. It just sounds like a determined, gutsy woman, and I want to make sure that we get a real sense of who she was. Yes, indeed. Um, she was uh, smart and resilient and, you know, gutsy in all the ways that you suggest. 
including trying to take back her life from someone who abused her for nearly 10 years. And my mother was a social worker. She had a master's in social work. She was well-connected. She had friends. She wasn't dependent on her abuser for her livelihood or for the care of her children or for shelter. She did all the things that we tell women in those situations to do to get out. And still, she couldn't escape. The statistics suggest that your chances of dying go up when you try to leave rather than when you stay. So she did that knowing what the outcome could be. That's tough. That's resilient. You described those years in Atlanta, this is 1973 to 1985, as the lost years. That's where she met and married this man known as Big Joe, who later murdered her. And there's a shift in your voice in the book from the first person to the second person when recounting how you first hear her being hit by Joe. This was, I think he must have been fifth grade. And the tension in the household, you walking on eggshells uh, and observing yourself as you, like a character in the story. What was behind that decision to use that voice? Well, two things. On the one hand, there is the way that a feeling of trauma can fragment the self, can make you wish that you were someone else and not the person to whom these things were happening. As a issue of writing, as an issue of craft, I wanted to show the way that trauma can divide the self because it became important to also show how what happens in the next chapter, the way that that fragment itself is collected, is gathered, is composed through the possibility of writing, um, of telling a story. And I try to set that imagery up in the very beginning of the book, in the prologue, when I write about seeing a news story in which the film, the video shows me arriving and going up and walking into the apartment the morning after my mother's death. The two-ness of that, feeling divided as the person watching oneself. That fractured self comes across over and over. You write, that's where it begins, our estrangement, yourself from your young self, this act of separation, which reads to me as an act of survival. I wonder if you think your mother may have been doing that too, separating from herself. It's an interesting question because, you know, I write about the... Janice mask that she had that represents uh, in drama, comedy, and tragedy, those two faces. And I talk about the way that she was able to show most always that laughing face to me, but perhaps hiding the face of tragedy, the face that was enduring what she was enduring. 
You never told her that he threatened to kick you out of the car when driving or that he was psychologically tormenting you or following you. So you, in some ways, were hiding that face of tragedy. And she never told you that he was beating her. So you, you both kept these silences. And I couldn't help but think of Audre Lord writing, your silence will not protect you. Did you think this was a way of protecting your mother from your pain? I think I, I did think that at first. I, I thought that, um, I mean, before I really knew what was happening to her, I thought if I kept that, I was being a good child. And then afterwards, even when I knew, it still baffles me why I waited until that moment that she and I walked hand in hand up the street together in my senior year of high school when it all came out in a, in a rush. But something, I, I had a conversation with someone else recently about abusers and how they somehow don't even have to tell you not to tell. Now that is the power, holding somebody in thrall in, in some ways. And you found out in a document written in her hand that she had had blackened eyes, fractured jaw, bruised kidneys, a sprained ankle. She lost all of this weight. The, the physical and emotional toll of years of abuse were really showing on her. And you also found in case documents that he had planned to kill you. Can you tell us what you learned about his plan? Yes, you know, it was um, the week that we left, that we escaped. And um, my mother went to a shelter for battered women with my brother. And I went to stay with friends from school. And so he couldn't find her, but he knew where I would be um, at the high school football game, down on the track with the rest of the cheerleaders. And so his plan was to come to the game and, and to kill me to punish her. He didn't he later told a psychologist, because I smiled and waved at him. I can only imagine. And that gesture comes back to you in dreams. And as you write in the book, the thought that had he killed you, then he would be in prison and your mother would have been saved. There must be so much associated with that. How do you look at it now, now that you've written it down, articulated it, and said these things out loud that you have been carrying for decades? Well, it, it helped me to learn that indeed I had been carrying in my body this sense of survivor's guilt. You know, in the one of the last chapters of the book, I quote Faulkner, memory knows before knowing remembers. It's the way that somehow in the body, I carried that knowledge of having inadvertently saved myself. Well, there is another document that you excavate from the court case. It's a transcript of a phone call your mother had with Joel, the man who ends up murdering her. He's just gotten out of prison for attempting to murder her. And she has been recording calls on the advice of a DA from DeKalb County as, as evidence of threats to get police protection. It is just harrowing to read how she's trying to reason with him. He says he's going to kill her if she doesn't reconcile with him. 
In the rest of the book, there's such an impressionistic, through your vision, sense of your mother. And then we get this very factual, almost forensic kind of evidence. Can you tell me about the decision to put that in the book? Because I'm guessing it was a debate for you. That was a very hard decision to make because on the one hand, you know, you think when you're writing a memoir that you're supposed to be telling the whole story and that I'm always interested, even as a poet, in documentary evidence. I make use of it all the time. And I thought that there might be readers who wondered why I wasn't telling the story. And I thought about how I could tell you how wonderful and resilient and smart and stoic and patient my mother was. And you might just think, well, that's just a daughter who would hear, you know, make a heroine of her mother and say that anyway. I needed you to see it. I needed you to hear it in her own voice, in her own words. Because I, then I think the facts are incontrovertible. You, you see just how much she had to do to try to save her life. And you hear her voice in ways that I could not ventriloquize. My guest is Natasha Trethaway. Her new memoir, Memorial Drive, was published 35 years after her mother was shot by her ex-husband in Atlanta. It is a profoundly moving book about a deeply personal loss. And, and after all those years of erasure, how does that feel to have this story out there and then to have to talk about it over and over again, even several times a day? I, I, I was just thinking of, a, of, of some quote from some famous writer, and I can't exactly remember it, but um, he was asked if he liked writing a particular book of his, and he said, no, I like having written it. I feel like that. Um, I did not like writing it. It was very difficult to go into those places that I've spent most of my life trying to bury and suppress. But I feel so happy to have written it. Mainly because for me, it is an attempt to create a lasting monument for my mother something more lasting even than stone. And to think that so many people are getting to know her in this way makes me feel really happy. Well, I, I am happy to know her through this book uh, as a truly amazing woman. And, and you really hear it on that phone call that she is, you know, she's fighting for her life on some level. Which leads to a question. There was an officer assigned to the complex where she lived who left hours before he was supposed to, and that is when she was murdered. We're reading this at a time when there are big questions being asked about policing, especially given the history of policing and African Americans. Did the system fail your mother? You know, the system failed my mother in so many ways. But it doesn't start there. The system that failed my mother is a nation that turns a deaf ear to domestic violence, to a society who thinks 
domestic violence only happens to certain kinds of people, perhaps people who have some flaw, character flaw, that brings this to them. A society who often says to women, you made your bed, now lie in it. A society that in, in, in our nation's uh, capital, when, when Congress voted to reinstate the, the Violence Against Women Act, there were people who voted against it. When the first time he tried to kill her and he was found not guilty of attempted murder, there was a juror who lived in our apartment complex who said, well, I think it's a domestic issue. They should work it out themselves. But the next time he's in the apartment complex, I'm going to shoot him myself. She's failed by every news report or police report that continued to call her his wife when they were divorced. This idea that somehow his claim to her was ongoing. The system that failed her is so much larger than that one moment. Well, there's a larger system at play here to systemic racism, which joins in, in your own personal history. Your mother was murdered in an apartment complex within view of Stone Mountain, the largest monument to the lost cause narrative of, of white supremacy in the world. And there are, again, calls to tear it down, especially since the death of George Floyd. So what do you, who, who excavated the most painful parts of your own family history, think of that counter-narrative, that this is heritage that cannot be erased or shouldn't be erased? Let's just say, I'm not trying to erase it. It was already erased. If the true history of the victory of our nation were inscribed on the landscape. See, this monument is to the traitors, the people who fought to preserve slavery, who fought to destroy the Union, as opposed to the nearly 200,000 African-Americans, native sons from the South who fought for the Union in the Civil War to support and protect the Union, to fight for their own freedom and to push this nation a little closer to its founding ideals. If we had monuments all across the South to the victors, to the preservation of the Union, that would be history, as opposed to having erased that by only having monuments to white supremacy. I want to explore that connection to this book, as a monument, as you called it, to your mother, and also an exploration uh, connecting to your calling as a writer, that thing that drove you to, to look for meaning, to articulate it, which you describe as duende, the, the demon that drives an artist. Can you elaborate on how these are connected? Well, you know, so... Um, what Lorca, uh, Frederico Garcia Lorca was talking about in Duende is the difference between an artist who is simply able to make beauty. And that's a wonderful thing to make beauty. But without the demon, he calls it, that drives an artist towards something else, something that 
incarnates an awareness of death. Without that, it will be merely beautiful and not perhaps transcendent in necessary ways. He writes, in trying to heal the wound that never heals lies the strangeness. It is that deep wounding that allows us to make something beyond simply beautiful. I connected even to Rumi's idea, the wound is the place where the light enters you. When I think about the two things that probably hurt me, one of them has everything to do with being in Mississippi, being born to a place like that, um, when my parents' marriage was illegal, when I was rendered illegitimate in the eyes of the law, sort of the way that in W.H. Auden's memorial to William Butler Yeats, he writes, Mad Ireland hurt you into poetry. Mad Mississippi did some of that too. And, and that's the kind of poetry I wrote as a child. But it was the deeper wound of losing my mother that really made me a poet. Needing to try to contend with that grief that seemed insurmountable. Even if I'm writing about some of the most traumatic things. When I am creative and, and making a poem, that is when I'm at my happiest. A poem is generative. It is the greatest act of hope there is. In the face of despair, writing a poem, and even writing this memoir says, I'm still here. I have survived this, and I can shape it into something beautiful. That is a wonderful feeling. Art heals us. It carries us. It helps us shelter. Natasha Trethaway, former Poet Laureate and Pulitzer Prize winning author on her new memoir, Memorial Drive. Our conversation was recorded at an Atlanta History Center virtual author talk co-sponsored by Air Serenby. On Second Thought is produced by Priya Mahadevan. Supervising producer is Amelia Brock. Jesse Neiswanger and Jake Troyer are our engineers. Our executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thank you for making some time for the life-saving power of art and everything you hear with On Second Thought. <laughs>